Okay, um, quite a big topic. I'm going to approach this rather theological topic in a sense um, as from a philosopher's viewpoint. And if you know any philosophers, you will know that they're always saying things like, well, it depends what you mean by. Um, so I'm going to be principally interested in, well, what do you mean by um, saying that the Bible is inspired, that it's uh, authoritative, that it, you know, what do you mean by infallibility or uh, inspiration? Um, and we might get on to looking at the activity of the Bible if I haven't used all my time up. Let me start with um, quite a long but interesting quote from William Lane Craig talking about the now agnostic biblical scholar Bart Ehrman, uh, author of books uh, like Misquoting Jesus. Bart Ehrman uh, was raised Christian, came from a Christian background, was a Christian, and then lost his faith uh, whilst uh, studying New Testament. And Bill Craig says, Bart Ehrman had, it seems to me, a flawed theological system of beliefs as a Christian. It seems that at the very centre of his web of theological beliefs was biblical inerrancy, and everything else depended on that. Once the centre was gone, the whole web soon collapsed. But, says Craig, such a structure is, is flawed. At the centre of our web of beliefs ought to be some core belief, like the belief that God exists. Uh, with the deity and resurrection of Christ somewhere near the centre. The doctrine of inspiration of scripture will be somewhere further out, and inerrancy even further towards the periphery as a colliery of inspiration. If inerrancy goes, the web will not collapse because belief in God and Christ and his resurrection and so on don't depend upon the doctrine of biblical inerrancy. It's actually the other way around, and I would agree with Craig on this. This is uh, Richard Swinburne, British Oxford philosopher, who says the church has always claimed that the Bible was inspired by God, although written down by human authors. Uh, we have a different view of, of inspiration and, and the inerrancy of scripture than, than a Muslim view of the Quran in particular. And so at any rate, when it has a clear message, it is true. So inspiration from God that it is a revelation from God and not just humans' attempt to write down what they think about God, and that it is in some significant sense, because of that inspiration, true uh, by the criteria of its own genre. You can see, as a philosopher, he's already putting in qualifications to what you mean by saying the Bible's true. And it's true when it has a clear message and when you're understanding it in the right kind of way. And we'll see a lot of that as we go through. What I'd like to do with you today, really, is kind of road test to destruction uh, various definitions of, uh, uh, of these things and kind of interrogate those definitions with, with some sort of thought experiments uh, until we, we crash that one and, and slightly reshape our definition until we come up with one that seems to be roadworthy, as it were. So let's start with uh, inspiration. Uh, two Bible verses here, two Timothy 3, verse 16 to 17 is a very important verse theologically here. It says, all scripture is God-breathed. In the Greek, if I pronounce this cor cor correctly, theo, God, panoustos, like uh, from the same root as like pneumatic, so on. Uh, and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that all God's people may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. 
Contrast that with or compare that with Genesis 2 verse 7. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath, the pneuma of life. And the man became a living being. In both humanity and scripture, you might say, uh, a part of creation transcends itself via the breath, the pneuma of God. Keith Ward puts it this way. He says, I think the natural way to take the text from 2 Timothy is to say that God has breathed over, inspired the minds of the many writers of scripture so that with all their varying viewpoints and differences of approach, the scripture Scriptures build up an authentic and trustworthy testimony to the divine plan. Unlike the Quran, mentioned this, I think this is very significant to, to grasp the difference between uh, Muslim and Christian belief on this. Unlike the Quran, the Bible does not claim to be dictated by God word for word, except in a few very minor uh, instances, um, short instances. Uh, very few Christians have taken a dictation view of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's much more typical to think of the Spirit as overseeing, inspiring the writers of many uh, different individuals to ensure that taken together, there's this emphasis again on, on the whole that arises from this process, they convey insight into spiritual truth, but not putting words one by one into their minds necessarily. The personalities and beliefs of the writers weren't simply overridden by the Spirit of God says Ward, but rather used to build up a set of documents which would, as a whole, give true insight into the nature and purposes of God. Now, let me try and give some analogies for understanding inspiration, three analogies for inspiration. One, I think, would obviously be the incarnation of Christ himself. Um, just as Christ is both uh, fully human and fully divine at one and the same time, well, so the Bible is the word of men, and perhaps some women as well. Yeah, that's a whole other topic. Uh, and the word of God uh, at this one and the same time. So uh, if Jesus can be both at the same time, then it doesn't seem too much problem with the Bible being it as well. Or how about greeting cards? When I go to the shop and I look at the greetings cards, they've been written already. They might have little poems inside them, little messages inside them, written by people that I don't even know. But I pick one of those cards, look through them, and I think, yeah, that, that one really expresses what I want to communicate to my mum on Mothering Sunday or my dad on his birthday or whatever. And I pick that card and I send it to my mum or my dad. And they receive it and they read that card and they take it as a message from me, even though I didn't write it. Now, over the course of a, of a year or a lifetime of, of, of someone sending you greetings cards... You could obviously build up quite a big picture of how they feel and think and relate to you. Uh, all done through the words that that person who sent you the cards did not write or dictate to the writers of the cards. Maybe there's a partial analogy for inspiration of scripture there. You may recognise this painting as something by Vincent van Gogh. What you probably won't recognise at the distance you are from it is that each of these little squares that it's actually divided up into is a photo from NASA. If you get close enough. Now, supposing, you know, maybe, maybe not, these photographers were told, I want you to go out and take lots of photos that have predominantly different shades of blue in them. 
because I, I'll need lots of um, blue for the sky and, and different shades of blue in this painting. Maybe they were, maybe they weren't told that, but either way, someone's then taken those individual photographs and arranged them, built them up into a bigger picture that says more than any of the individual pictures on their own does. Um, although they obviously have a certain appropriateness to this Van Gogh painting of, of the starry sky at night uh, coming from, from NASA. Maybe there's a partial analogy there for inspiration in that kind of picture. Zalvin Plantinger says, given that the principal author of the Bible is God, the meaning of a biblical passage will be given by what it is the Lord intends to teach in that passage. We aren't just given that what the Lord intends to teach us is identical with what the human author had in mind. So although the hermeneutical question that we often ask, you know, what did this passage mean to the original author? You know, what did Paul mean when he wrote this? That is not a definitive way of finding out what the passage means, because possibly God means something else by it that is revealed when you place that passage from Paul in the context of the bigger picture that God is building up through scripture as a whole. I think that's quite an interesting point from Plantinger there. So the, the human author's intent is going to be a useful question, a useful in, part of your information, but might not actually be definitive of answering the what does it mean question. Okay, the authority of the Bible. Something about the inspiration, something about the authority or the truth of the Bible. Bill Dembski says that uh, inerrancy derives from the Latin noun error, inerrancy, or mistake, whereas infallibility derives from the Latin verb fallor, meaning to deceive or lead astray. So you'll often find these two terms, inerrancy and infallibility, and they do actually mean different things such that it's possible to be infallible without being inerrant. You can be lacking deliberate deception whilst not lacking error. Um, so the two don't mean the same thing. And with uh, philosopher Douglas Blount, when he says one could treat scripture as authoritative, i.e. reliable, without believing it to be inerrant, Accepting biblical inerrancy is not a prerequisite for reasonably believing what Scripture says on the grounds that Scripture says it, in other words. He points out that many Christians don't believe that Scripture is inerrant, and of course this makes them no less Christian than those who do believe it to be inerrant. I think that follows from giving that this, this idea of inerrancy, as Craig was saying, is very much on the, the theological periphery of the web of uh, beliefs that you have to hold in being a Christian. Very, very hard to be a Christian if you don't believe there's a God. Uh, it might be awkward, but possible to believe uh, be, you know, a Christian if you don't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. So the only obvious problem uh, with saying that Scripture is, is literally inerrant or without error, in the sense of containing no false propositions, the problem with saying that, of course, is that Scripture does contain false propositions. So what do we mean by inerrancy, given that scripture contains false statements in it? Um, Tremble before him all the earth, the world is firmly established, it cannot be moved, says Chronicles 16.30. When of course the earth is moving all the time, you might say. Uh, it revolves, orbits the sun and varies its axial tilt, 
constantly moving. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all other seeds, says Jesus in Matthew 13, 31. As Bill Craig says, nobody thinks that when Jesus says that the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds, Mark 4.31 also, this is an error. Even though there are smaller seeds than mustard seeds, it's not true. That statement from Jesus' lips is just not true. Um, why don't we take that as an error? Well, because Jesus isn't teaching botany. Um, he's trying to teach a lesson about the kingdom of God, and the illustration is incidental to the lesson. Jesus was speaking proverbially or colloquially uh, within the context of first century uh, Israel agriculture. Um, within that context, everybody knew what he meant. You know, The black mustard seed was the smallest seed ever sown in that context. Plantinga puts it, the Bible's not a book full of declarative sentences with proper analysis and logical development and all the accoutrements academics have come to know and demand. Uh, it is not much as a philosopher reading it might wish it were like the first half of a Richard Swinburne book where he tends to say things like, in the first half of the book I will define my terms. Here's a chapter defining the meaning of thisness. Um, you know, that's very useful for patient logical analysis, but you know, Perhaps fortunately, you might think, the Bible's just not that kind of a book. Um, so the definition of inerrancy clearly must be qualified so as to allow for the, the ordinary language nature of what's going on there, as a philosopher might put it. Now, of course, you might say to me, there are ways of understanding these verses, and I could give you other examples, so that they aren't false. But there are ways of understanding them such that they are False. Depends how you interpret it, doesn't it? So scripture is only inerrant when interpreted as being, or so as to be, inerrant. It's actually the dialogue between the reader and the book. The inerrant interpretation is ideally also the most intrinsically plausible ordinary language interpretation although one might justify some degree of flexibility, and it's quite hard to, to qualify, quantify, how much flexibility one might be justified in giving here. But let's look at another concrete example. It's a rather blurry picture from Rembrandt of the denial of Peter. You see, I put this little arrow here to this girl whispering in, in Peter's ear, should this girl be talking to Peter? You'll see what I mean. This is uh, Peter's second denial of Christ from all four Gospels. And we'll notice that we have who's making the accusation. Um, she said again, this follows one of them in Mark. Matthew, uh, another servant girl saw him. So she again or another serving girl, different serving girl. Luke, someone else. It's translated here, but literally in the Greek it's heteros, a masculine other. It's not even a girl. In John, so they asked him. On the face of it, it's mutually incompatible. Actually, I think it's plausible to assume that John's they incorporates Mark's servant girls, Matthew's second servant girl, who actually, when you read the text closely, speak to the group with Peter, and Luke's masculine other, who speaks to Peter on behalf of the group, the they. So actually, you can harmonise these when you read the text 
closely enough. Careful attention to the text discovers a plausible, inerrant interpretation of the text. But look at Peter's first denial. Um, Mark, um, you also were with that Nazarene Jesus, is the accusation. Matthew, you also were with Jesus of Galilee. Luke, this man was with him. John, you aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? Does this servant girl, same in each case, in, the, in this case, say all four things? Well, possibly, but it seems pretty implausible to me to say, yes, she said all four things, and none of these is wrong. Oh, Peter's reply, um, I don't know, I understand what you're talking about. I don't know what you're talking about. Woman, I don't know him, I am not. Did Peter say all four things? Again, seems pretty implausible. So whether or not the girl should be in the Rembrandt painting depends on the first or second denial issue. Um, the literally inerrant interpretation of some verses, whilst logically possible, is so implausible that it might indicate our understanding of inerrancy might be a little bit too woodenly literal still. Bill Craig points out that the Gospels should be understood to different performances of the oral tradition. It's just a snapshot of what the oral tradition is saying at that time. And he notes that in oral tradition, um, it's important that you get, he draws an analogy with, um, in Western culture of telling a joke, where he says it's important you get the structure and the punchline right, but the rest is incidental. When you compare many of the stories about Jesus in the Gospels, you find that same kind of structure. Variation in the secondary details, but very often the central saying is almost verbatim the same. That's the way that the oral tradition uh, tends to work. Were it, uh, so things in here that were it not in an oral culture might be regarded as an error, wouldn't be taken by that oral culture, for which texts are secondary to the eyewitness testimony and the, the way that stories are told in community wouldn't be taken as erroneous at all. So if you go back to Peter's denial, and this time, instead of highlighting what's different between the texts, I've highlighted what's the same between the texts, then you get a very different picture because you suddenly see, well, it's, telling, it's obviously telling the same story with the same important points, isn't it? Um, Peter, courtyard, servant girls... Um, you're also with Jesus, denied it, I don't know what you're talking about, went out, servant girl said, this follows one of them, he denied it. And you get that again and again and again, particularly in the synoptic gospels being very close to each other there. Now, even when it's understood within the limits of genre and ordinary language, scripture still contains false statements. After all, scripture records lies uttered by Satan, doesn't it? And they're false statements. So context is obviously very key here. Um, there is no God, says Psalm 14, verse 1. Fools say in their heart, there is no God, blah, 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 if you read around the context. What goes for one verse, one line, one sentence, goes for entire books, I would suggest, particularly like Ecclesiastes is a good example. Very different view of religion than the rest of the Bible. And what goes for whole books, you might say, goes for whole testaments. We understand the old in light of the new. So you have to, again, qualify this idea of inerrancy to take into account the limitations of ordinary language, literary genre, and context, and what the Lord is intending to teach us there. So there's no getting around this, this long word of hermeneutics, trying to wisely understand what the text really means. Um, 
understanding every part of Scripture in the light of every other part of Scripture and so on, taking into account the progressive nature of Revelation is going to be important. I mean, the Trinity might be foreshadowed in the Old Testament, but it doesn't really come out until the New. Um, Jesus qualifies things. We had this the other week. You know, it has been said, quote from Deuteronomy about divorce, but I tell you. Um, so here's the Second Vatican Council. I'm going to turn to the Catholics here for a nicely nuanced definition. Um, their definition of inerrancy says, the books of Scripture firmly, faithfully, and without error teach the truth which God, for the sake of our salvation, wished to see confided to the sacred scriptures. So nicely qualified by them, but that I think I could sign up to. Just a few brief words on activity in my last few seconds. We started with 2 Timothy, all scriptures God breathed, but notice the rest of it. Useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training, so that God's people may be equipped for every good work. Or Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. Inerrancy might be reframed or also understood from a different perspective uh, in terms of what scripture will accomplish in us without fail when it is used or when it is received by us in the right spirit. So the Bible then becomes one component, if you like, in a divinely wrought process of human transformation. Those other components being the reader and our reason as we try and understand it, the Christian community and the tradition that helps us to understand it, and the Holy Spirit uh, and prayer and that relationship with God that tries to help us to understand it. So reason, tradition, the Spirit and or prayer. As C.S. Lewis, and I'll finish with this quote, puts it quite nicely in his book, Reflections on Psalms. The total result, and he's talking about inspiration here, is not the word of God in the sense that every passage in itself gives impeccable science or history. It carries the word of God, and we, under grace, with attention to tradition and to interpreters wiser than ourselves, and with the use of such intelligence and learning as we may have, receive that word from it. Not by using it as an encyclopedia, but by steeping ourselves in its tone and temper, and so learning its overall message. And I think there yeah, you can kind of see how he's fusing that sort of... Um, activity of the Bible angle on in, uh, inspiration and inerrancy with the, the sort of carefully qualified what do you mean by inerrancy, genre, context, progressive revelation, etc. that I think you really have to qualify it by. Otherwise, you end up with an interpretation that's, that's just going to smash into the fact that the Bible does contain false statements. But that fact, I don't think, should be considered to be an impediment to thinking there's a genuinely sensible sense in which the Bible is inspired and inerrant. Thank you.